This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And in this episode, I have the delightful pleasure of having an old acquaintance who I've never met before. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get to that story in a moment. Michael created VinFresh Wine Group in 2018 after launching three distinct wineries in Napa Valley, Bordeaux, and Oregon. In 2020, an additional winery was acquired to the group in Tuscany, Italy. Kennedy's drive to create wines of freshness, vibrancy, and life has created a thread of commonality in the wines throughout all the brands. His passion for wines are complex, long-lived, and built for food, and has driven him to assemble a team of winemakers and friends that help create wines of substance. In 2017, Kennedy was named to Forbes Magazine's 30 Under 30 list for his work in the wine industry. He's been called a rising star by Food & Wine Magazine, Super Psalm by Bloomberg's Ellen McCoy, and a top young entrepreneur in America by Business Insider. He splits his time between Napa Valley, Bordeaux, Tuscany, and his hometown of St. Louis. He and his beautiful wife, Rachel, have two sons and one more on the way. Congratulations about that, Michael, and welcome to the podcast. It's It's great to be here. Nice to finally meet you. An old friend. An old friend. (laughs) We we have a lot of of people in common. I'm thrilled that... An infinite amount we're finding. Yeah, our paths have crossed multiple times in Washington, D.C. I'm sure we've met there. And yet, to be here in person with you now, and by the way, being in person with anyone post-pandemic is a thrill for me. It's a treat. It is a real treat. But i got to ask you, how did Vin Fresh get started? I mean, this is amazing. I mean, you, you've been to Napa, you've been to Bordeaux, you're Oregon, and you've got these wines from Tuscany. And, and evidently, you're a very busy guy traveling all these places. How did it all get started? Yeah, sure. So... I, as we were just talking, I was a sommelier for quite a bit of time, uh, D.C., Cayman Islands, worked for an amazing chef named Eric Repair for quite sure, some time. Yeah. Um, working for Chef Repair was was uh, pretty foundational for me um, because I got to, you know, not only work in an incredible cellar and pour wines that I only read about in textbooks, um, but I got to meet, you know, through his network, really winemakers, sommeliers, all these people that I really looked up to. And as a young kid, as a young sommelier, I mean, that opportunity just doesn't come along very often. And, um, and, and through that, I ended up, you know, um, kind of falling in love with, with American wine, which sounds crazy because I'm American. Um, but, you know, coming up through wine, I, I, I was a huge Francophile. I loved Italian wine. I loved really like anything but American wine <laughs> and um, and uh, through that cellar and through those those relationships um, that, that I was afforded th- through that job um, I had to go you know I had to go to Napa and <laughs> to Sonoma and Oregon and uh, and meet people um, I always tell people at a restaurant like that um, you you know as, as the wine director you're expected not just to have a great recommendation of a bottle in someone's interest, uh, you know, with a good price point or whatever, um, you're expected to kind of like, you know, know the, know the grandma and have had dinner at the house right, and right, stayed right, there right. And, and people, 
people at that restaurant really wanted. I harvested this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and so it just gave me a chance to to dig deep on relationships with winemakers. And one time I was in um, Napa, which was admittedly a place I didn't fully love at the time. Um, and I, I met this young winemaker who had just left Screaming Eagle to go to Bryant family. And um, we walked through the vineyard. He was talking about rocks and. He brewed his own uh, beer there, and yeah, I was totally blown away by him and, and his outlook on wine and everything. And um, uh, you know, obviously, he knew what I did, and and I must have I must have uh, you know gotten myself into trouble talking about things because he decided to blind taste me when we went back in the winery, probably to test if I knew what I was talking about. Turns out I didn't. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but he was a freaking file too, if I can think of oh, the right person. Oh, big Yeah, Mark. Well, it was, it's not Michelle Roland, but no, uh, but Mark Gagnon, yeah. and and he is. He he's actually right now currently obsessed with Beaujolais, which is uh, really fun because we enjoy Beaujolais. drinking that together. Yeah, uh-huh. Beaujolais Crew is like our new new fun thing. But anyway, um, yeah, he he took me into the winery at, at Bryant Family, which is you know obviously known for great Cabernet sure. Sauvignon. Sure. Far outside of any of our price points uh, that we personally drink, but um, but he um, he took the time to to walk me through, explain how they do things, which which I had had at many wineries before. But he blind tasted me on a glass of red wine from Tank, and he said, you know, hey, what do you think this is? And at the time, I think we had just gotten a top one hundred and a top one hundred wine list in the world award or something like this, and uh, I was I was feeling pretty good about my knowledge in wine. Um, and 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 I've learned anytime I start to feel really good about knowledge anymore, I, I back away from yeah, that. Because, back, yeah, back. <laughs> yeah. But um, but yeah, he he poured this for me, and he's you know, what do you think this is? And I put my nose in the glass, and it was like dark and exotic and perfumed and spiced. It was it was off register for me. It was like nothing I'd ever smelled before, and um, and uh, I was I mean I was you know. I, I didn't know. I had no idea what it was. I was like, I'm at Bryant Finley. It, it has to be a Bordeaux variety, you know. Turns out it was 100% Petit Bordeaux. Um, they grew a tiny bit on their estate. But, but a Bordeaux, Bordeaux, Bordeaux variety. Bordeaux variety, but something I'd never experienced because it's always 5% in the blend. You talk about it. You read about it. You hear people like just wax about Petit Verdot and what it means and all right. these things. Um, they but whisper in, it in hallways. Right. <laughs> but in reality, like, you know, no one gets the opportunity, unless you're a winemaker, to, to experience it on its own and get to know it. So through that through that tasting, when I was still working for Chef Repair, I had the idea, well, why don't we, why don't we buy some barrels of these really awesome varieties that are about to get blended and, um, and, and have them on their own? And bottle them on their own, and it can just be a like, single variety. Yeah, just like a little negotiant project of really high-end Napa wines that are unblended, um, and that apparently was interesting to people because uh, later that year it grew so much that um, uh, I ended up leaving my job with Chef Repair to focus on it full time, and that was the birth of Component Wine Company, um, and and then that grew to more wines, amazing friendships that were completely helped, and then. We expanded the relationship to working with Daniel Los from uh, from Bordeaux, and we make three single vineyard wines there with him. He's the, the former head winemaker at Chateau Lynch-Bage for 50 years. Um, and uh, and then, you know, started our next winery and on and on and on. But it's all based on, you know, friendships and, and obsession with, with learning. That's kind of the, the baseline. And just to back up for a second, you know, when we talk about 
your chef Eric. He is most famous for is the restaurant Le Bernardin. Le Bernardin, yeah, exactly yeah. in New York. And I just wanted to yeah. kind of get that out there for people who didn't know yeah. who we were talking. So about. he has two restaurants. He has Le Bernardin in New York, which um, just maintained its four stars with New York Times and three stars with. Uh, the Michelin Guide. I think it's the longest running three Michelin in the U.S. Can you get me a reservation? Uh, yeah, just give me like six months. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's at no, least six no. months earlier than I could get I'm, one. <laughs> I'm still not special enough to get those uh, priority last minute reservations, uh, but uh, no, they take good care of us. But um, and his other restaurant is Blue Blue, uh, Blue by Eric Repair, uh, which is in the Ritz Carlton Grand Cayman. Wow. Um, so, yeah, really really amazing man and uh, really generous and did a lot to help us get that started. Even though I was leaving, you know, his restaurant, he was insanely generous and really supportive. So that's what I hear about him. Yeah. That's wonderful. Now you had mentioned when you were at Bryant family and and the winemaker took you through uh, this blind tasting, you know, he decided to put, put you to the test. Uh, Tell me about your relationship with him today. (laughs) All these years later. So in, so we we started selling component in 2016. I met him in 14. Right. So it took us you know two years to kind of get off off the ground, um, and then he decided to leave Bryant in 2018. Um, I had already had two wineries by then. Some wines, which is our collaboration with uh, um, the team at Lingua Franca in Oregon. Sure. Yeah. And then. Um, you know, component in Bordeaux and, and Napa. At the time, though, I was hanging out at his house by his pool. He'd <laughs> All right. opened some beers for us. We, we weren't drinking wine, and you'll find in Napa a lot of people drink beer. But um, well, it, takes a, yeah. <laughs> it, takes, it takes good beer to make great wine. Yeah. So we were hanging out by his pool, uh, drinking Modelo or something like that, and um, and I just said, you know, hey, what, what are you going to do next? He kind of stunned me by leaving Bryant. I mean, that's kind of the pinnacle yeah. in the valley. I mean, yeah. he worked at the two... Two, a lot of people two of the five greatest A lot wineries. of people have gone through there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he was the longest running since, uh, I think he was the longest running period. Uh, a lot of winemakers yeah. were hired and fired yeah. from Don Bryant. But um, but yeah, so uh, he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I said, well, why don't you do your own thing? You know, you've been making wine for these really wealthy people for, you know, the greater part of your career and at the highest level. And He's got a great reputation. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, he's made some of the best wines that, that I've ever had from the Valley. And, um, he's like, you know, I just don't know. I don't know if, I don't know if I could run my own winery. And he's like, why don't we do something together? <laughs> and at the time, I mean, I had a one year old, I had no employees. I was running both of these by myself. And, uh, I said, no, I was like, I yeah, and you had six beers in you. I had six <laughs> beers in. And if you know me, you're, you're, you'd be surprised to hear that I said no, but I did. Um, and he wasn't really serious about it. We were, you know, like you said, six beers in, but, um, eventually my, my wife was like, Oh, Hey, you know, maybe when the best winemaker in the Valley says they want to do something with you, you should probably reconsider that. <laughs> so, smart wife. Yeah. Yeah. She's quite smart. Um, talks a lot of sense into me, but, um, yeah. So then we just started talking we were like, okay, let's, maybe there is something we can do together. Um, we just, we were, we were both obsessed with the history of the Valley, the history of California. He's like, I don't know, fourth or fifth generation Californian. And we decided, you know, there's a lot of great wine in Napa, um, but it's all really based on brands and people. 
Um, but the story that's not really being told in Napa right now is um, the history of the valley and, and the wine, the vineyards that, that were foundational to what the valley is today. Um, and wouldn't it be kind of cool if we made wines from all the historic sites in the valley or as many as we could? Um, and with that, we kind of took a, a page out of Burgundy and we said, okay, the, the vineyard name will be the biggest name on the label. The brand name will be the smallest, our, okay. our name. Right. And uh, we just did old school Burgundy hyphenated name. So Mark Gagnon, Michael Kennedy, it's Gagnon Kennedy Vineyards. And, um, and we, make, uh, we make wines from vineyards that were planted in the 1800s. Um, so we make some of the oldest in the valley, so certainly some of the most important, like Beckstoffer George III, Missouri Hopper. We make uh, really cool wine from the uh, research block that UC Davis owns in the middle of Tokelon. I've been there, yeah. yeah it's it's really, really cool. cool. Really cool. Cool stories. Mark Mark would be good to tell you stories about working there when he was at Davis. But, um, yeah, and, and that, that kind of grew into this amazing thing. He now is uh, head winemaker and partner for everything we do. Um, all over the world, and uh, he he really is like one of the greatest winemakers I've ever encountered, and I'm insanely blessed that that I get to work with him. You guys so. make a good team, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's good to have you. a psalm and a winemaker. You, you know, know. I, want, I want to know the origin of Vin Fresh. Yeah, now, for Vin Fresh. And by the way, I'm saying fresh. Yeah. It's F, it's actually F R A I C H E, right? Like creme fraiche. Yeah, exactly. Like creme fraiche. Exactly. But what's behind? It's a the, great question. Yeah, I want to know. Well, we get trouble when we're in France because uh, technically uh, fresh wine in French would be vin frais. Um, but uh, vin fresh is um, more appropriate for the U.S. market because, I mean, we were obsessed with freshness. Um, back in the day when I was just getting into the Bordeaux winemaking side of things, um, I kept hearing from like people like Berenice Lerton and all these amazing people, oh, yeah. they would just, and I know you know Berenice, I'm sure, <laughs> um, but uh, every time they would taste a wine and it would blow them away, I would notice that one of the first things that they would talk about was the freshness. Um, and, uh, and then I you know, introspectively thought back to the greatest wines I've ever had and one of the things that always stands out in a great wine is freshness, the acidity, that that brightness in a wine. And um, and our style through everything that we do, no matter where we make it, is definitely on the fresh side. You know, um, I don't want to get too sami here, but it is a wine oh, podcast. Please do. It is a wine podcast. <laughs> um, if you get too yeah. sami, you know, I'll, I'll just I'll kick pull me. You back. Yeah. <laughs> but please, um, I, you know, the way you make wine contributes to the state of the fruit and if you're taking the the sommelier exam you know we talk about the state of the fruit like is it ripe fruit is it tart fruit that is tells it utah us fruit? right utah fruit um <laughs> the state of the fruit <laughs> and um and that's really important and it's you know on on the sommelier side of things when a wine was out of balance it was almost always because it was either too unripe or too ripe and in reality, almost always it was too ripe. And it had pushed that way for a long time where people were harvesting sure. later and they were having lower acidity, higher ripeness. Yeah. And um, we just we just don't believe that. It was a style for yeah. a while. Yeah, style for a while. And it's come back. It's definitely come back. 
Um, it's come back. I mean, the style has come back toward freshness, which which is great. Um, but yeah, freshness is the way. It's like our ethos in winemaking. It's just freshness, you know. And that's the name. Yeah, fresh, and fresh. Wine. Yeah. Now I, I equate freshness, and then and here's where I'm ignorant, and why you're a, you're ignorant. No. You know, <laughs> while you're running a wine company, I'm just the guy interviewing you. But I always think of you know when I think about freshness in a wine, I'm thinking like a chilled down Albarino and mm-hmm. uh, and a hammock. You know, I, I'm thinking of that kind of a, a freshness, um, the kind of freshness you're we're talking about here. For me, I think balance, right? Absolutely. I think about you know, how does it feel. The first thing I think of when I when I put a wine in my mouth isn't the the flavors or, or I, I'm, I'm looking at balance and texture, and mm-hmm. then I start going through uh, you know the the flavors, and and I'm getting a sense from you that that's kind of what we're talking no, that's about. That's exactly right. I mean, the great wines of the world are uh, a balance of ripeness and acidity and um you know texture i'm glad you brought that up that's something people really don't talk too much about and i wish we did i'm obsessed with it i'm obsessed with texture um our chardonnay uh is the most textural chardonnay and it's like thrill it's a it's a like thrill on the palate i mean it's just so fun um and the wines that we all love tend to have incredible texture but i think a lot of what drives great texture is of course you know lees contact oak treatment things like that but but acidity is one of the main yeah. drivers of yeah. great texture so. um, but yeah balance is what we strive for um, it's kind of a broken record in the industry right now because um, if you go to any winery it's like oh we're really balanced or we we let the fruit speak or the vineyard speak and all these cliche things but um, but really if you want to make a great wine you know you need to keep your your fruit and your acid imbalance. Yeah, you start with balance and texture. I yeah. can, couldn't agree more. And those are the hallmarks for me of the greatest wines mm-hmm. I've I've ever had. Now, I'm going to touch a third rail with with you. Um, and uh, I do see we have a couple wine bottles here. Don't take one and beat me with it. <laughs> but I've noticed that you don't submit your wines for points. Yes. And points, you know, uh, love them or hate them, points sell wine. They do. And I am very curious. Uh, as to your philosophy about uh, not submitting your wines for, for points. Yeah, it's a tough one. And I think I think that sometimes I wish we did have points because, like you said, it sells wine. Um, and I have, no, I have no doubt that our wines would score very, very well. Um, but uh, there's three points to this. <laughs> no okay. pun intended. Three, three yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm anti-point with points. Uh, okay, so I mean, for us, one one of the biggest things is we had we've made a commitment to our team uh, to try to protect their mental health. And just like great chefs who have left the system of um, being raided by um, newspapers or Michelin Guide or James Beard and all that, um, it's not healthy when a winemaker's life's work is arbitrarily given a number. Um, it's hard for them. It's really hard. Uh, Mark, who's made m- so many hundred point wines, um, it it wasn't great, you know. I mean, and I don't want to speak for him because you know there were times when it was really wonderful when you get a great score. But if a, if a vintage doesn't, you know, it's t- it's hard. It is it's hard, really hard. Right? But the essence of wine isn't. Um, what we love about wine has nothing to do with like perfection 
you know. Um, so much of what we love about wine is what makes it unique. Um, I, I like to equate it to art. You would never go into an art museum and go to the, you know, Monet exhibit and say, oh, well, the water lilies are in 99, you know, but, <laughs> but like, you, you, if you started putting points next to things in, in real life, you start to feel differently about them, you know. Um, a great example is if we had two wines and we submitted them for points, and we love both of these wines. They're from different vineyards, though. They express themselves very differently. Um, if, if you had one that was rated in 96 and one that was rated in 92, the next year, there's no way that you're not going to make the one that rated 92 more like the 96. And so it starts to kind of change, even if you try not to, it starts to change the way you feel about your own creation and the way you make it going forward. Yeah. And we want to we want to maintain the creative nature, the mental health. And then beyond that, I really just don't think we should be comparing wine that way. Uh, my my um, my my least favorite thing when we go to these huge wine lunches we were just talking about. Right. Um, I, I hate the question that inevitably comes up, like, which is the wine of the day? Which was the right. best wine on right. the table? Always. It always comes up. What's the wine what, of the day? What night? a ridiculous the the thing. Any other day, yeah. every one of those wines would blow people away. But when you put them side by side, instead of appreciating, like, what makes this Sauvignon Blanc we're about to taste so special, it has nothing to do with all the other Sauvignon Blanc in the world. Like, you're just supposed to appreciate that Sauvignon Blanc in that moment, what makes it special. Um, and, uh, and I think by focusing so much on what someone else thought about it and in comparison to other wines in that region, I just think it takes the joy and life out of wine. And I don't want that. You know, I want people to, and it's difficult because I get asked all the time, well, what is this rated? You know, and it's like, well, we don't rate. And then I have to go into this whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to send him your podcast now because it's, yeah, it's here, recorded. He'll <laughs> yeah. explain. Yeah. You know, that, Michael, I'm, I'm that, passionate about it though. Michael, that is the best I have ever ever heard this explained uh, and, and I love the analogy of the water lilies although I do think they're a, a hundred points um, and, and I, I, I would agree I, yeah. uh, and, I, and I love that because there are a few things in life that we do where we're actually assigning a numerical numerical value right. to uh, to a piece of art like winemaking right. and I have to tell you personally having been somebody who's judged and granted points in my prior mm -hmm. life uh, as a wine uh, journalist and critic, they're, uh, it's not only subjective, but the days I'm tasting the wines are subjective, where I could maybe have just having a bad day or mm -hmm. a little hungover or I've got a head cold or whatever, and you're trying to power through it, and a, a perfectly delightful wine might not receive the love it deserves. On top of, it could have just been a bad day for that bottle, right. and the room temperature could be low, right. and the glass could have been dirty. I mean, there's a million things. Right. So and dog dander. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. there are a million things. Yeah. It's fascinating to me as somebody who's kind of lived and died by points in the past that I'm now going to rethink this. Yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you I've, for I've listening. Really... I mean, I think it's a good conversation. I don't know that I'm right. And I'm sure there is a really great argument. And I, I will say points have done a lot of good in the industry too. It's brought the American wine drinking public to wine away from other spirits and, uh, alcohol. I think it's given people with no knowledge, a lot of confidence in, in their purchase in the grocery store when it says 
you know, this is a 92 point wine for $15 or whatever. I mean, sure. it makes people feel good right. and there's good to it. I'm not saying it's all bad. Um, and, and I have friends that are journalists that rate wine and I think that what they do is great. It's just not for us. All right. Well, yeah. you know what? I, I think that's great. I think it's, I don't want to call it a bold move because <laughs> it's because, but I, I do think it is a, a move in a different direction because points in, like you said, somebody's driving home and they're swinging into a wine shop to pick up a bottle of wine, mm-hmm. and they see that 92 points for 15 bucks. Yeah, it's got to be good, right? But they don't know anything about the person who maybe rated it. Or you know, It is a very subjective game. I'm yes. glad that you've brought this up because I think <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating. Now, I have to say that um, we have some wine in our glass right now, and I'm, the, uh, the, the aroma is making me absolutely <laughs> giddy. So I have one more question for sure, you sure. before we jump into my favorite portion of the podcast. This is incredible what you've built. It's it's absolutely Thank remarkable. You. The brands, where do you see it going? Where Where's the future taking us, Michael? I mean, we don't want to get big. Every wine we make, even though we have winemaking in different regions, um, every wine we make is really small. Our largest production wine right now is a 1,000 cases, which is um, our single vineyard Riesling in Washington. I, I don't ever want, you know... Someone who is much smarter in business than me would probably say it would make sense to go really vertical on production levels. Scale up, yeah. Um, but because me and my entire team, Mark, we don't want to do that. We we make site-specific wines in very small amounts, and I'd rather make a ton of those that are all unique and different than I would make a lot of one thing. That being said... You know, there's obviously chances to increase on a single vineyard what you can make and whatever, but our future is really in digging into the special estates that we have, building history there, learning from the land. I think the longer you're on a site, the more that site reveals itself to you. The the ups, sure. the downs, you know, it could you could you could have history with that site. And that, I think, translates to more authentic and beautiful wine. Um, so ideally, we, we, we dig in. Um, but then, every once in a while, an opportunity comes along. Like this, we just acquired a new property in Tuscany. Um, it's called Borgo Benelli. It's from the 1700s. It's an old hamlet. Um, it's a little tiny worker village for the castle next door. And, um, and we're going we're gonna to build our, our, our winery in Tuscany there and, and we're going to invest a lot into that community and, and to, uh, to, you know, expressing the history of that estate. And, and I guess what marks whatever we do in the future, and I don't know, I try not to look too far ahead, <laughs> but what marks what we do now and in the future will be, um, I would say an obsession with, with place, a, a respect for the history and a, um, a healthy view on what, expression of wine should be. I I think we're healthy. I don't think we're right all the time. I don't think we're perfect or better than anyone, but I do think the way we look at wine is, is really healthy. You know, um, like this is a food, the best bottles I've ever had have always been over a meal with people I love, you know? Um, and I think, I think we should maybe try and look at wine a little bit more that way. (laughs) Um, but, uh, Let's but, assign, but that's let's the future for points us. that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah what was your experience with the wine? Maybe that's a better question. I love that. I love. I actually, some writers I have seen in the past, they'll say, enjoyed 
in this scenario. Have you seen that kind of I have. footnote? I, have. I love. I that. even started doing that myself yeah. in the latter part of my career. It sets the tone. Like it helps you understand their state of mind when they're drinking it. You know. And <gasps> oh, <love> I have <laughs> a. You know what? I have a great idea for my next podcast. I'm going to call it Wine Goggles. <laughs> I love that. I love it. Uh, Places I've been, yeah. people I've met, wines I've drunk. That'd I need to listen great. to that. And I, I think that's more interesting than than a point on a. I don't want to beat that horse yeah. dead, but um, yeah. I mean, what was the what was your favorite bottle you've ever had? I haven't had it yet. Great. I'll let you know. What are what are your? I've like, had memorable bottles. What what are what was the most fun you've had drinking wine? Oh my god! Wait, uh, do you have bail money? <laughs> We can edit this part out. <laughs> you know, I, I would probably say um, it would it would have to be. Uh, I was with my wife in France, and we were on a balcony overlooking a vineyard, drinking a unbelievably what I would call a fine champagne. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, an absolutely dead center of the bell curve fine champagne, but it's the most memorable one I've ever had. And That's. That's the point. Right? It, it's just because of who I was with and yeah. what we were doing, and uh, just that magic moment yeah. um, of uh, of that. That's what that's what sommeliers get to do is they get to help you. You know, I was so I think sommeliers are so lucky, and wine shops can be this way too. And I've, we've all experienced a great person in a wine shop that you get to know. Absolutely, but. It was such a privilege as a sommelier to go to a table, especially in a really high-end restaurant, and you'd see a couple, and inevitably it was a special occasion, you know, it's birthday, anniversary, whatever. The cards are kind of stacked in your favor, because almost anything you give them, if they're having a good time, is going to be a great experience. And you're going to build a memory right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it's harder to do in a, you know, less friendly environment but um but i do think that some of the best people who've ever sold me one or the experience that i've had that have been great in that side of things is when they understand what your goal is for enjoying that bottle uh it's a really cool cool thing i'm gonna turn around on you though have you had your best bottle yet well I would say I don't believe in the term best bottle. So um, I asked you a question I don't even believe in. but <laughs> and, I, and I did answer it. <laughs> you, no, you had the perfect answer. Uh, I, I was just doing the thing I said that I hate. Um, but uh, no, I mean, I've had great bottles. I've had bottles that have blown my mind, but I've had uh, really affordable, like you mentioned, Albarino or, or Vino Verde or whatever you said. Um, I mean, I've had bottles like that that have, that have stood out to me because yeah. of company or situation right. or place and um uh i think i think that's that's wine you know like the best food we've ever had or the you know whatever it's always around like something special other than just the food right Absolutely. you know or other than just the wine so i guess the moral of the story is you know find awesome people to hang out with and drink wine i will say <laughs> that i had a very unique situation just this week where my best friend from high school and my college roommate were over for dinner and we opened up a couple first growth bottles of Bordeaux, and while the wines were phenomenal, they were balanced and beautiful mm-hmm. and just hitting their stride. It was being with those two guys and just sitting there looking at each other, going, "How do we get here?" <laughs> and and that That's moment it. that we were able yeah. to take it in, yeah, and and, and the wines were great. But it was the situation that really elevated yeah. everything. 
Well, and I, you know, that's, that's, I've heard you on previous episodes talk to people about their, you know, the, their aha moment yep. wine and things. And, um, almost every time they'll t- they'll say the wine, but they'll also say like the situation in which they Absolutely. drink it. And it was always a really pivotal situation for them. That, yeah, it definitely had a lot to do with wine, but there was something else in every one of their stories. Like Ian's was was uh, the fr- I think I remember what he said. He drank a, a mucini or something like this, and it was oh yeah, it was with his, yeah, old, yeah, yeah. his old boss. Yeah. Uh, you know, his first wine job or something. Right. And, um, I think we all working have those, in a wine shop. Yeah. 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 So, you know, you're a beach ball on a golf tee because that's actually the, the last question I'm going to ask you. <laughs> you could not have said that great, any better. Great, great. What was your aha moment? Where, where was it? What was the epiphany about wine yeah. for you? It wasn't actually around a wine bottle. I'll, it's a weird answer, but when I was 12, I had a French teacher. My French class was uh, this woman named Chantal Morrissey. She was my French teacher. She was from Bordeaux. And um, my aha moment around wine was well before I could drink. Um, she was telling us about the culture of wine and how it's, you know, family, tradition, place, circumstance, all these things. And she was saying how at baptisms in Bordeaux, they put a drop of Bordeaux wine on the baby's tongue. And, you know, that hit me like a sledgehammer for some reason. I was like, you know, why would wine be involved in this? There must be something more than alcohol. It must be special. You know, and then that set off my whole journey toward wine was that random comment in my French class. So Okay, so you're the very first person I've interviewed (laughs) whose aha moment around wine did actually didn't involve wine. wine. (laughs) (laughs) My partner Mark is the same way. Uh he he got into wine when he was eleven or something. I can't remember the exact story, but it had nothing to do with actually drinking wine. So Wow. It's a weird thing. That's a first. Yeah. All right, well, you know, speaking of wine, and, the, and again, I told you that we have these two wines open and the room just smells great. <laughs> it's time for my favorite part of the podcast. What's in your glass? <laughs> well, we have two wines, uh, two, two really special wines. Cheers, by the way. Cheers. Um, this is the Ooh. Component <laughs> Wine Company 2021 Sauvignon Blanc from the Farfalla Vineyard in Dry Creek. Um, this is actually our first vintage on this wine. Uh, we hope that this becomes a really, really long-term site for us. But 100% Sauvignon Blanc. Um, this was made in clay amphora and neutral. What? Yeah. What? Clay amphora. Clay amphora. What are yeah. you going, like, old school? Yeah, very like, old really, school. Like, really, like, no, like... Like, really, like, really, like BC thousand old years. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's coming Clay back. Clay's, Clay's really coming back. Uh, wow! And it just adds a textural element, like you were talking about. Yeah. Um, and then uh, some neutral barrel and some stainless. So it's kind of a, a three-way um, textural relationship with the is, grape. Is it literally a third, a third, and a third? Or uh, roughly, roughly a third, a third. A third. Um, we only made 150 cases, and it's um, yeah, it's just this really bright. Uh, um, textural, uh, floral white wine. Um, and is it 100%? 100% Sauvignon Blanc. So no Sauvignon in there because it's got like this richness to it that's really super cool. And, you know, that's if why I, I love working with Mark. Blind, yeah. <laughs> right? You know? Yeah. I'd be like, oh, there's got to be Sauvignon We love Bordeaux Blanc. You know, we we are obsessed with it. Um, obviously, there's other great expressions of Sauvignon Blanc like mm. in the Loire Valley and, and, oh. and beyond, but but for Napa Valley, a Bordeaux Blanc style makes sense. No way. Yeah. No way I would peg this as, as domestic. <laughs> That's you know. a deep compliment. Thank you. <laughs> no, I'm serious, man. This is, 
This is yummy and delicious with the vibrancy of it. And nothing. And by the way, nothing against Napa or, mm-hmm. or Sonoma or, or any domestic Sauvignon Blanc. I adore many of them. Right. Uh, this is this is just in a different lane. Thank you. Yeah, I I, I wish I could take credit. It must for be it. the clay. It's, it's really Mark. <laughs> no, I mean the clay. The clay adds a texture. That's concrete wild. and clay both. Right. Yeah. Add, concrete. I know. Yeah, they add a textural element. But um, this is so it's it's yeah. stainless, neutral oak, and amphora. That's right. Clay amphora. Yeah. yeah. Um, we do some lees aging on it to give it that kind of Maybe champagne-y, yeah. you know, yeasty texture, which is really nice. And then, uh, yeah, it's bottled after mm. after nine months. Uh, not even, sorry, six months. And, um, yeah, it's just really fresh. It's a cool climate. From Dry Creek. Dry Creek, yeah. It's a very cool climate. I think of um, Dry Creek as cool climate. That's this is like a, a really unique site. I mean, Mark searched for this site for years, and when he came across it, they only in our in this vintage gave us a tiny amount of fruit. Okay. Um, we we now have the entire vineyard, which is great. Um, but it's a unique Sauvignon Blanc for sure. Do I ask what's the uh, the price on this? Seventy five. Okay. So not crazy, but definitely on the higher end yeah, for, yeah. for California yeah, listen, you know, Sauvignon Blanc. Listen, I've seen Sauvignon Blancs in, in California creeping up in the one fifty one seventy five range. So you know. That's, it's true, and there's they're they're great. Screaming Eagle Blanc is more than regular Screaming Eagle, which is wild now. I think wow. it's like forty five hundred on the secondary market. What is Screaming Eagle? <laughs> I'm gonna get letters. I love I'm it. I'm gonna get letters. I don't know. It's, I get emails. Uh, you won't believe it. Yeah, it's a pretty good winery. I've heard of. Yeah, I've heard of them. <laughs> yeah, actually. Um, and and what? So seventy five. So seventy five dollars yep, for the Sauvignon Blanc from a cool climate vineyard. In Dry Creek, we're saying a lot of things that I never thought would come out of my mouth. <laughs> With respect, well, to you know, I mean, luck. cooler than Napa for yeah. sure. You know, Napa's um, an upside-down horseshoe of mountains in every direction, and the only access to cool air Napa has is from the San Pablo Bay. Right. Um, so, unless you're in the south of Napa, it's really warm in comparison to everything else in California. So, I mean, unless you're talking Central Valley, but we don't talk about that. Um, and then the red we brought is from our state in Tuscany. It's called La Caccia di San Giovanni. Um, oh, we're moving on. From, oh, we can talk about this all day, <laughs> whatever you want to do. <laughs> so, uh, so, Michael, what's in the second glass? <laughs> uh, wow, somebody's got a date. <laughs> I drank a little bit too much coffee maybe today. But, um, yeah, so the second glass oh. is our third vintage of the Super Tuscan. Um, this is a cool estate. Um, it's in, it's west of Siena. It's kind of in the middle of Tuscany. Um, it's west of Siena, south of San Gimignano, south, southwest of Florence. Okay. East of Bulgari. Um, it's literally in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's in a town called Casale Delsa. Um, and it's in, in, a, a former 4,200 acre hunting preserve, um, so it's a it's a really special piece of land that's been relatively untouched for quite some time. Um, on our estate, we have clay, limestone, sand, and granite. So minus granite, that's right bank Bordeaux. Um, and so that's kind of the way we make the Cabernet from the estate. This is, by the way, this is 50% Cabernet, 40% Sangiovese, 10% Petit Verdot, um, all from, from the estate with the exception of the Petit Verdot. And... Yeah, we just kind of, we try to let it be. You know, Mark's, Mark is brilliant at a lot of things, but one of the things that I love about him is his ability to show restraint. His ability to do less 
when I'm a control freak, so I, I would be, you know, doing more to control it. <laughs> and his his confidence in winemaking is amazing to watch because he can he can just he can watch, you know, and, and that takes that takes strength to just sit back and not do a lot. Um, and, and our wines in general are touched that way. They, they are pretty hands off. Um, you need hands to make wine. There's no doubt about that, but you know, it's, it's just, I mean, what, what do you think? I mean, it's just, let's talk about this. (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, uh, just, just the, the, the bouquet on this wine. I don't know whether I want to drink it or dab it behind my ears. (laughs) Uh, and, and use it as perfume because it it is it is spectacular. And Thank then you put it in your mouth, and the first sip, you know, we talked about we talked about balance earlier in the in the podcast. And for me, this wine is like watching Simone Biles nail a vault. <laughs> it's a ten. Uh, the the balance in this wine, I don't know, you know, Mark, if you're listening, hats off, brother, because <laughs> you, you did it, and and the. He did. The profile is, it's just incredible. I mean, I can't even tell you what I'm tasting because I'm still blown away by the balance and the mouthfeel of the wine. And and then as, as I think about it, all I really want is a steak. <laughs> we did it last night. It was a, a great. I highly steak. recommend it. <laughs> um, this, this wine is, it, and it's, what year is it? 2019. No. Yeah. It, yeah. it tastes like a, a wine much I mean it's so smooth and integrated and it's a weird combination to have Sangiovese which is really high acid thin skinned it can go crazy high alcohol if you let it um think like Zinfandel high alcohol um but but you know otherwise it's like strawberries you know and it's it's more like Pinot Noir in a lot of ways and it's blended with Cabernet Sauvignon which is you know the opposite of that um so to have those two in a blend together is um it's kind of like icy hot, you know. I mean, it's like it's it has this really elegant, thin, salty uh, side from the Sangiovese, and then from the Cabernet, it just has this like smooth elegance. Um, and and you put them yeah. together, and it yeah. shouldn't work, but it does. But but I've had these blends right, before, right. right? I've had Sangiovese and Cabernet, right, and even right. Merlot, blown, mm-hmm. you know, thrown it, but not like this, not not like this. This is. This is special. What what is this retail for? Seventy five as well, um, and this yeah, is one of the most affordable I, I need, wines we I make. I need a case. Yeah, um, yeah. This is this is really a delightful wine. Gosh, it's just you. perfect right out of the bottle. Thank you so much. Uh, and we did it with a Corvin. I might might note that. <laughs> so it's really fresh, which I guess been fresh. That's the point. Yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, <laughs> no, you nailed it. I'm slipping you twenty bucks under the yeah, table. That was, for that. That's Look. awesome. <laughs> Uh, and uh, do, you, do you distribute nationwide? So we do. We're, we're um, you know, you can visit this estate and the new estate that we're developing Oh, I right plan now. to. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's quite easy to get to. It's barely outside of Siena. But we do have the wine available here in the U.S., both through, you know, the winery direct. And then also, um, you know, I think we're in 21 U.S. markets or something like that. Wow. So, Michael, please just remind our listeners the two wines we just tasted again. Sure. The component... Sauvignon Blanc from Dry Creek, the Farfalla Vineyard, and then and the vintage on that 2021, but okay. it's sold out. The 22 releases yeah, next okay. week, so don't worry. There's there's more to go. Oh wait, there's more. <laughs> um, and then the Lacaccia di San Giovanni 
which is our Tuscan estate. Uh, this is the 2019 vintage, uh, which is the current release, and um, they are both seventy-five dollars. Well, I can tell you, I just swallowed that last <laughs> that last sip, so that should tell you something. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure having you, uh, you so on the much, podcast God. today with me, and all of our small world connections. I cannot wait to tell the folks back home who I met. <laughs> and this is just a, oh, you know, I'm pretty sure game. that uh, you even been my son at some occasion or at some point. There's in my no, life. Doubt. No, no doubt, no doubt, yeah. no doubt at all. Yeah. So, well, thank you. I mean, it's it's so fun to you know sit down and reminisce on. DC and the things that they didn't hear on the podcast because we spent too much time uh, talking about them. But <laughs> um, it's great to, to just have a chance to open wine and share it. That's why we do what thank we you. do. And so. thank you for sharing such extraordinary wines. Thank really, you for genuinely. Sharing. Thank you. Uh, appreciate it. Well, that'll do it for this episode 